your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Frankly speaking about cancer with the wellness community, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones. Our services are offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Uh, last week, we brought you the, the second episode of our special three-part series called Navigating the Healthcare System When You or a Loved One Has Cancer. So far in our series, we've provided uh, valuable information about organizing your finances uh, in the event of a cancer diagnosis, as well as tips on how to manage your health insurance and make that work for you. Today, we're wrapping up our financial series by taking an in-depth look at Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security Disability Insurance, uh, often called SSDI. Uh, But before we begin, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. Researchers recently reported that men with locally advanced prostate cancer are more likely to die if their doctors shorten the time they are treated with hormone-suppressing drugs. Prostate cancer is diagnosed in 192,000 U.S. men each year, and 27,000 of them die. New screening tests have allowed more cases to be caught early, but the best treatment for large tumors that have spread to both lobes of the prostate has been the subject of debate. The new study, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, followed 970 volunteers given radiation treatment combined with drugs to suppress androgen hormones such as testosterone. After six months, half of the men were taken off of the drug, and the rest continued taking it for another two and a half years. The research team found that by every measure, those who stayed on the hormone suppression medicine longer did better than those who received the short-term treatment. While 47 men who took the short course of drugs died of prostate cancer, only 28 in the long-term group died. And while the tumors grew or spread in 191 men who received six months of androgen suppression therapy, Only 122 men who kept getting the anti-hormone drugs had had that kind of spread. Researchers explained that the difference in the effect of short-term and long-term androgen suppression on five-year mortality was modest in the study, but believed that the advantage of long-term suppression is likely to be maintained at 10 years. When used in the early course of the disease, androgen deprivation therapy can improve survival, but the researchers also found that to achieve this effect, therapy must be provided for at least three full years. Long-term therapy had some significant drawbacks, producing more hot flashes, lower libido, and reduced sexual activity. However, both groups reported the same overall quality of life. Researchers believe long-term treatment combined with radiation should be limited to patients with advanced localized disease who are receiving radiation or to men whose disease has spread. 
sometimes just hearing the words Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, disability insurance, it's enough to, to give you uh, anxiety. And, and, and while these programs are in place to help people with serious health issues, making sense of them to, to determine if and how they can work for you can seem sometimes like an impossible task. And uh, if you combine these financial anxieties with the stress that already comes with a cancer diagnosis, the world can seem uh, pretty bleak. So what can you do if you've been affected by cancer and need to apply for one of these programs? Well, today we're here to provide you with some guidance around Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security disability insurance so you can make smart, educated decisions. As I mentioned at the top of the show, today is the third episode of our three-part series examining the critical issues cancer patients and their loved ones face when coping with a cancer diagnosis. Uh, in addition to this series, the wellness community is pleased to announce the upcoming release of our newest educational booklet, Frankly Speaking About Cancer, Coping with the Cost of Care, uh, which is available now at the end of June. Uh, on today's show, we're going to take a close look at some very important programs that directly affect um, how people manage the cost of their uh, their cancer care, Social Security, Disability, uh, Medicaid, and Medicare. And we are joined by three wonderful guests who are here to share their personal cancer experiences as well as practical tips and advice. Uh, first, we have Joanna Morales, Director at the Cancer Legal Resource Center based in California. The Cancer Legal Resource Center, or CLRC, uh, is a joint program of the Disability Rights Legal Center and Loyola Law School. The CLRC provides free and confidential information and resources on cancer-related legal issues to cancer survivors, their families, friends, employers, healthcare professionals, and others uh, dealing with cancer. Joanna was also a reviewer of our book, Frankly Speaking About Cancer, Coping with the Cost uh, of Care, and the CLRC uh, has been a, a partner with the wellness community for many, many years. So thanks for being here, Joanna. Thank you for having me. We are also here with Michelle Shanks from the Patient Advocate Foundation. Michelle is the Program Director of the Centers for Disease Control and the Patient Advocate Foundation Cancer Prevention and Survivorship Partnership. Uh, the uh, Patient Advocate Foundation was also one of our partners in developing the book, Coping with the Cost of Care. Uh, thanks for joining us, Michelle. Thank you. And uh, last but not least, we have Nancy Boozer. Nancy is a cancer patient and has been a participant at our wellness community in Atlanta for the past eight years. Uh, she also has a significant experience uh, in the trenches applying for both disability and Medicare and is here today to share her story. Thanks for joining us, Nancy. Thank you. Uh, we've got a lot to cover on the show today, so I want to get started. Um, I, I want to start by talking about Social Security Disability Insurance first, again, SSDI. Nancy, I'm going to start with you. Um, I would love it if you would take a couple minutes to tell us about your, your cancer experience and tell us about what your insurance situation was like at that time and, and when did you realize uh, you needed to go on, uh, on disability and then, you know, what was that process like trying to get onto disability? Okay. Um, I was diagnosed in 1996 with breast cancer. I had um, discovered a lump in my breast, and, and, and after a mammogram, they discovered another lump in my other breast. Mm. Um, I had just moved here uh, to Atlanta about nine months prior. I was just working temporary assignments and had no insurance uh, of any kind. Uh, so I was very much in a state of panic when I got the cancer diagnosis, you know, was very concerned about how I was going to pay for everything and, and manage my expenses um, as a single person, you know. Um, yeah, I went through the standard, uh, you know, range of treatment. I had uh, a partial mastectomy, and then that was followed by, you know, the, the four cycles of adriamycin and then radiation therapy. And I did well and finished my treatment in April of 97, 
when I uh, started to go back, you know, to find, you know, gainful employment. And um, I was able to do that. Um, but as I said, I still did not have insurance. Um, I was blessed to have a surgeon who called a um, an oncologist and told him that I needed to be treated and and he wanted this oncologist to take care of me. I never received a bill or anything for any of my um, treatments at that uh, at that practice at that time, um, and I n- never had to pay for even my surgery. I had filed for financial hardship through the hospital at that time, and that bill was uh, was you know wiped away, so I didn't have to you know uh, worry about that, but. I, I knew that this was going to be a long-term situation for me, so I still was concerned about how I was going to pay for, you know, my aftercare. Yeah. You know, I was fortunate. I did finally get gainful employment, mm-hmm. and shortly after that, in 1999, I was diagnosed with a bone metastasis. Wow. And, uh, and I had, you know, great insurance at that time and was able to take care of all my expenses, uh, but... Uh, I had to go on short-term disability with my employer, mm-hmm. and then I transitioned into long-term disability, uh, whereupon I knew that I had to go then to the next step, which was file for Social Security disability. Got it. Got yeah, it. I had uh, had a good relationship with the social worker at the practice I was in, and she was very helpful and instrumental in helping me apply for you know disability yeah. and get the paperwork in. Again, I was fortunate because I was approved within like 35 days. Yeah, wow, wow, that's pretty quick. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn to Michelle. I mean, you've been through quite the range of experience there, Nancy, and uh, I'm gonna turn to Michelle and and, and uh, let's try to get a little bit of an understanding of uh, how does someone who's been diagnosed with cancer qualify for disability benefits? How do they even understand if they're gonna qualify for some of that? First, by contacting uh, their local Social Security office, a a lot of questions can be answered, but the Social Security Administration has two different benefit programs, and their definition to um, a disability determination is if your health condition is going to prevent you from working on a full-time basis for a 12-month period of time, you should call them or get online and uh, apply. And a lot of people don't have access to the Internet. So by contacting the 800 number for Social Security, a lot of questions can be answered. An appointment can be scheduled either face-to-face or a phone interview with the Social Security Administration to find out if they are going to qualify for benefits. But the two different programs that they have, SSDI, Social Security Disability Insurance, is based on a worker's earnings if they've paid into the system and um, have enough earnings on the system for that benefit. The other program is the supplemental security income, and there are no work requirements or work credits required for that, but it is income and asset-based. And the Social Security uh, Administration professional that they're talking to at that office can look up their Social Security number and tell them, is there going to be a benefit and what benefit they're going to qualify, take the application and start the process for them. And those offices, Michelle, are, are local offices or, or did you yes. say that? There, there are local regional offices and, and uh, I, you know, I will tell patients to call the 800 number, which is 800-772-1213 
they're going to direct them to the closest office. If they have Internet access on the Social Security's website, ssa.gov, there is a office locator in the left-hand margin on the home page, and they can just type in their zip code, and it's going to bring up their local office that they need to apply at and start the application process. Let's get those two resources out once again. Give us that the phone number and the website again for our listeners, Michelle. Sure. The national toll-free number is 1-800-772-1213, and the website is www.ssa.gov. So that's, uh, that's S as in SAM, S as in SAM A, as in Social Security Administration, .gov. That's correct. Great, great. So then, so so... Once folks uh, get to the point or understand that they may actually qualify for some uh, assistance, what's then the, 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 uh, the process for, for moving forward to apply and, and to getting that, that, that help? Okay. If, if they do contact the Social Security Administration, they're going to either set them up with a face-to-face interview at that local office or a phone interview. Depending on the health of patients, they, can, you know, they may not be able to make it into the office. So they'll start the process. Um, complete the disability application. If uh, the patient does have earnings, there's a little more to the process with uh, completing the um, disability application and their work history forms. Um, The Social Security uh, Disability Examiner that is, or actually the local person is going to start the application and then it's sent off to another facility. Each state has a disability determination services that's going to collect the information, the medical records, and um, make that determination. For a person that is just diagnosed with cancer, they're in shock, they're unsure of, you know, the steps they need to take, the first person to contact is, you know, their local office to start the process, but then You know, if they need further assistance in in getting medical records like um, Nancy, she turned to her social worker who helped provide those medical records to um, to the Social Security Administration so that they could make a determination in such a short time because... Those records, um, if they're significant, they can make a quick decision with, uh, with certain diagnoses. So quickly, we just have a minute before the break, Michelle, but normally how long does it take for folks to hear back, and what's the you know, kind of rate of approval versus denial? What should folks expect? Well, I mean, it, it can range from 90 to 120 days, but now Social Security has uh, a decision that they can make on a compassionate allowance, which can give you a decision within 30 to 60 days. Mm-hmm. So to expect a, a quick decision usually uh, is not going to happen unless you have involvement of a social worker or a case manager to get you uh, through the process a little bit quicker, getting the information maybe faxed directly to the office so that you're not waiting for the time uh, to turn around with mail and, and uh, getting forms back. Okay, and just quickly, we're just about to go to break, but... Um, uh, so, and are folks, is there a percentage on how many people are accepted, rejected first time around? Well, I mean, there is a higher rate of, of rejection first time around if information isn't complete and turned back in in a timely manner mm-hmm. or if medical records are not submitted by the providers. So, okay. I, that's, so we're, 
that would be the reason that, that they're denied, is they're falling into those cracks. Those cracks, great. Okay, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. It attacks the brain, and you might not know what hit you. It's a stroke, and it can cripple or kill you. If suddenly you're numb or weak on one side, limb, or face, it could be a stroke. Get help. There's no time to waste. It could even be a sudden, severe headache without cause. If you wait to get help, time lost is brain lost. Maybe it's a loved one slurring their speech or dizzy. Call 911 and get medical help quickly. There are even more symptoms that I did not mention. So call or hit the web for information and prevention. Blacks have a higher occurrence. Do you want to know more? Call 1-888-4-STROKE or visit www.strokeassociation.org. High blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. All make the risk of a stroke more likely. But remember, if it happens, do not delay. Or disability might be the price you pay. A public service message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo, and uh, in recognition of the wellness community's newest educational book and program, uh, frankly speaking about cancer coping with the cost of care. Uh, today's episode is the third of our special three-part series that ex- examining critical issues cancer patients and their loved ones often face when coping with the diagnosis of cancer. Uh, we're here today with Nancy Boozer, a participant from our wellness community in Atlanta, Michelle Shanks, Program Director of the Patient Advocate Foundation, and uh, Joanna Morales, who will, uh, we, we are going to get to you, <laughs> Joanna, when we uh, start to talk about Medicaid and Medicare, and we know you know uh, quite a bit about that. I just want to cover a little bit more about the uh, Social Security uh, disability insurance and, and other, a little bit more of a discussion on disability, and then we're going to turn to Medicare and to uh, Medicaid. Um, so getting back to Social Security and disability, Michelle, um, what kinds of coverage does 
SSDI does disability insurance provide? Is it, uh, is it all-encompassing? Is it complementary to uh, other insurance? What, what does it look like? Okay. When a patient is deemed disabled by the Social Security Administration, they're going to receive a benefit allowance based on their work credits that they've paid in. So it'll be a financial benefit to them. But also with that disability determination, uh, some states will allow um, medical insurance through their state. Uh, but after a 24-month period of, of receiving that disability benefit, they're going to be eligible for Medicare. And I know that you said you're going to talk about that a little bit later, but that, that really is what the benefit is from Social Security Disability Insurance is a financial um, money benefit that they receive based on their earnings. Got it. Got it. So, Nancy, you've been through this process. Um, what were some of the challenges you faced when you applied for uh, uh, disability, and, and, and what uh, quick tips would you give to uh, someone else who may need to go through that application process? Well, I think my first challenge was just, you know, calling into the system and just getting over, you know, the, the nervousness and of, you know, what, what's going to happen when I make the initial phone call. Um, there, a person answered the phone, and and I did an application over the telephone, and then shortly, I think thereafter, I received you know a packet, uh, the application packet in the mail, and that was the most daunting for me because it was such a lengthy application. Uh, but I did go to uh, you know to my social worker at my doctor's office, and I you know with her help and assistance, I was able to navigate through that paperwork and submit, you know, the documentation. So I would definitely recommend um, to all, you know, the patients to use the uh, personnel at your doctor's office, especially the social workers or the benefits counselors that they may have. And, and if you're employed, even um, contact your own human resources department at uh, your employer mm -hmm. um, to help you to navigate through the process so it doesn't seem you know, so overwhelming to you. Right. That's, I think that's great advice, great advice. Michelle, we, we, we kind of got three things on the table, and I want you to help us clarify those three things. Maybe we can go down the list. So number one, we're talking about Social Security disability insurance. Mm -hmm. Number two, we're talking about supplemental security income. And then number three, we hear folks talking about private uh, disability insurance through their employers. So can you, can, can you, can we start with just clarifying what is Social Security Disability Insurance, then we'll go to SSI and then private. Okay, and Social Security Disability Insurance, SSDI, is based on a worker's earnings. Um, if you have a patient diagnosed with cancer and they've worked the last five out of the last ten years, they're going to have probably enough earnings on the record but the Social Security Administration professionals are going to tell them if they have enough work credits to get that benefit paid to them on a monthly basis if they're deemed disabled. Supplemental Security Income, SSI, there are no work requirements. This is maybe for a patient of a mom who stayed home and raised her kids and her family, mm -hmm. and, uh, and the income has to be very limited to the household. I mean, really low income and under $2,000 in assets for a single person and $3,000 in assets for a couple. Including so, the home? Does that include the home? That does not include the home or one vehicle. This okay. would be in cash assets. Okay. So 
SSI is a really a needs-based program. It's for somebody, maybe a single mom, who doesn't have the work credits because she's raised her kids, but her income is very low to the household. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, a single person who just hasn't been able to work um, and there is no income. SSI is a, a benefit, but it's a low-paid low benefit. Uh, the private disability insurances that people may carry through their employer, once they're deemed disabled, um, their human resource people are going to, to direct them in, in applying for that benefit that they have el- uh, eligibility to. But, th- but they have to apply for it, and they have to be found disabled from these private uh, insurance carriers um, in order to be paid a benefit. Now, they can get that benefit if, if, they're, if they're found disabled, and then still be applying for Social Security disability benefits. They can. They can. And they can get them both at the same time? Uh, they, they can, they can uh, initially have their employer uh, disability insurance, which is, is their only income. When they approach Social Security, they're going to, you know, be reporting that information, that they have that as income. But that doesn't mean that it's earned income. It's a disability income. And when you're going to Social Security and saying, I can't work any longer because I'm disabled, then you're completing those applications with them, and they're going to be telling that person, uh, the patient, okay, you have enough work credits. You're eligible for this. You're not going to be eligible for SSI probably because you have that disability income. Um, So they're going to help hopefully help the patient understand that, you know, which benefit is going to be, um, you know, in front of them if they're found disabled. Uh, but once receiving that disability income from the private insurer, um, they're not going to be eligible for the SSI, but they, they still would be eligible for their work credits that they paid into if they're found disabled. And so, and, and I know that in some, with some employers, there's short-term disability versus long-term disability right. that some employers offer. Can you tell us a little bit about what you know about those? Well, they're two separate applications usually, um, and just because you're found eligible for one doesn't mean you're going to be found eligible for the other. Okay. The likelihood is that you will be, but just so patients know that there's different um, criteria involved with short-term versus long-term. So, you know, reaching out to the human resource person with their employer, starting the application, and then, above all, making sure that all of the medical records are included uh, because usually that's a a reason for denial with the short-term or long-term is that it's a lack of medical evidence. Okay. They want to just make sure that process is completed. And, Nancy, how long did you say um, it it took before you, you, you were approved for Social Security Disability Insurance the first time around? Well, well, I was approved after I had was diagnosed with bone metastasis mm-hmm. because when I initially called the uh, Social Security office when I was first diagnosed in 1996, an employee, an employee there told me that um, the breast cancer that I was diagnosed with was not considered disabling. Uh-huh. And if my cancer came back in a more severe form, then it would possibly be considered you know, a disabling cancer, and then I would more than likely be approved, but it would still take time to go through that process. So you didn't even apply the first time around? No, I did not. And then you applied the second time around? I applied the second time after I had exhausted my employer's long-term disability uh, program. Got it. 
got it, then you went and applied for Social Security Disability Insurance, and you were approved on the first time around? The first time around. And how long did you say it, t- it took? I think it took about 30 to 35 days. It was, it was a very quick turnaround. Wow. So what we're hearing from Michelle, though, and I want folks to be clear on this, is that that is not a typical scenario. No, it's not. That it's not typical that, A, you're going to get a response, a positive response so quickly, and, B, that uh, a lot of folks are going to be rejected first time around. Is that right, Michelle? And then you can actually go back and apply again if you've been rejected? Oh, you can go through an appeal process instead of applying around, um, you know, going through the entire process again. They, they do have an appeal process, and they can take the application back to the original date. But I'd like to add to what Nancy had said when uh, she contacted Social Security the first time around, and they told her, you know, they didn't consider her original diagnosis disabling. And as a case manager with the Patient Advocate Foundation, I can't tell you how many times I've heard patients say, I called and I I told them, you know, I have this cancer. And they said, well, you have to be off work 12 months. Or actually, the definition is if you're unable to work on a full-time basis or or it's anticipated that your condition is going to keep you from working for 12 months, you need to apply and not let the person at the front desk and, mm. um, you know, try and ask you to c- contact them again a little later down the road if, if uh, the condition would worsen or something like that. Um, as case managers with the Patient Advocate Foundation, we will help someone through that process, uh, like Nancy calling and, and saying, you know, she has the, the, the disease progressed to her bones. We're going to make sure that she's um, that her application is looked at with the compassionate allowance in mind because of the, there's about 50 different diagnoses that they will consider and push through quickly. Um, but what we need to do is get that person to apply so that, that the people that make the decision um, are the ones making the decision on the disability, not, the, not at the front end of it. So you're saying that you could call... Yes. You could call the office and they could say, based on a few things that you say about your situation, now nah, you probably won't qualify, don't bother to apply. And you're saying that you shouldn't accept that on face value. That's right. I'm saying that, you know, you, you need to say, yeah, I would like to still complete an application. And, you know, the medical records are going to speak for themselves. If someone has a serious cancer diagnosis, you know, they, their doctor may not tell them um, you know, I'm not sure if you're going to be able to work or if this is a disabling condition, but yeah. that's because they don't have a crystal ball. And the patient that um, has a serious cancer diagnosis, I believe, should progress to this um, application process if, uh, yeah. if there's been discussions that the treatment plan is going to last maybe, you know, 10, 11 months. It's close enough to a year that I think uh, with one, one more thing I want to add with the social... You know what, I'm sorry, Michelle, we're going to have to go to a quick break. We're going to be right back, and we're going to be able to, uh, to, to, uh, to add that final point. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Hello. Hi, Bill. Uh, this is George Dewey from up the street. Oh, hey, George. How you doing? Good, good. Say, I noticed you've been walking to work these days instead of driving, mm. and I uh, don't quite know how to say this, but... But... But what? But... But... Your butt. Your buttocks. Your butt. I think I found your butt on my front lawn. Have you recently lost it? As a matter of fact, I have, George. It's about time someone noticed. 
Well, it was kind of hard to miss, if you know what I mean. Anyways, would you like it back? Would I like it back? No, not really. So it's okay if I throw it out? Sure, that's fine. Take it easy, George. Small step number eight. Walk instead of driving whenever you can. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to help you become a healthier, well, you. Get started at www.smallstep.gov and take a small step to get healthy. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today, we are having a really informative discussion about Social Security Disability Insurance, Medicaid, Medicare, uh, we're here with Michelle Shanks, a program director at the Patient Advocate Foundation, Joanna Morales, director at the Cancer Legal Resource Center in California, and Nancy Boozer, a participant at our wellness community in Atlanta. Uh, we've been talking about Social Security Disability uh, Insurance. Michelle, I know you had one quick point that you wanted to add before we move our discussion over to Medicaid and Medicare, so please go ahead. Thank you. With Social Security Disability Insurance, when you apply, there is, an five, there is a five-month wait period from the onset of a disability before a benefit can be paid. So the sooner a person starts that application process, uh, the decision can be made. Um, You know, people will wait too long, and then um, just starting the process a little bit sooner can uh, help them uh, get their benefit. Great. I think that's a a great piece to add and some great information for... uh, for our listeners. Um, <clears throat> I want to switch gears now and, and talk about Medicaid and Medicare and bring Joanna um, into this uh, uh, conversation. As I mentioned, Joanna Morales is the director of the Cancer Legal Resource Center in uh, California and a good uh, friend and colleague of the wellness community uh, for many, many years. Um, Joanna, you work with people who, uh, who need Medicaid and Medicare um, on a regular basis. Uh, tell us what kinds of services you provide there at the Cancer Legal Resource Center um, you know, and how do you help these folks who need, need guidance in trying to access these public services? Well, there are two main parts to our program at the CLRC. The first is that we provide educational seminars, conferences, clinics, teleconferences throughout the nation on all types of cancer-related legal issues, including Medicaid and Medicare. 
And we have a number of educational resources on our website as well, including seminars that you can watch online, fact sheets, and our legal resource guide for people with cancer. And the second part of our program is our National Telephone Assistance Line, which is 866-THE-CLRC. Mm-hmm. And anyone across the country can call us and ask questions about any type of cancer-related legal issue, and we provide free and confidential information about the laws that may apply to their situation, as well as any resources to enforce their rights under those laws. And we believe that if we educate people about their rights, then they can more efficiently and effectively advocate for themselves and navigate through all of these systems. How long have you been in existence there? We started in 1997. 1997, great. All right, well, let's get into this discussion about, let, let, let's explain for folks, because I know sometimes it can get really confusing, um, uh, the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. People often confuse them. Yes. So Medicare and Medicaid are the two federal health insurance programs. And Medicaid provides health insurance for certain groups of people with low income and resources. And Medicaid programs can be a little bit even more confusing because they can be called different things by different names in other states. So, for example, in California, Medicaid is called Medi-Cal, while in Tennessee it's called TenCare. So you have to figure it out in each state. (laughs) Make it even more confusing, right. So people with cancer um, typically qualify for Medicaid through um, what's called its Aged, Blind, and Disabled program, which provides coverage to individuals with low incomes who are either over the age of 65 or who have a disability, like cancer. And Medicaid does offer some additional programs for people whose income is too high to qualify for Medicaid. Um, For example, some states have a share of cost program or what's called a Medicaid buy-in program, which allows you to purchase Medicaid for a monthly premium. And Medicare, Mm -hmm. alternatively, is for people ages 65 or older Mm -hmm. or for people who have been receiving Social Security disability insurance benefits for two years, as Michelle mentioned. And the Medicare program is broken up into four different parts. Mm -hmm. So Part A is really only hospital insurance which means that it will pay for inpatient hospital care, a skilled nursing facility, and some home health or hospice care. Part B is really the substance of the policy. It covers things like physician services and your x-rays and lab tests and cancer screenings and any outpatient services. And if you're eligible for Medicare, you can choose to receive Part B, but if you do, you pay a monthly premium and an annual deductible for that part of Medicare. Mm-hmm. So Part A and Part B are what we refer to as original Medicare. Okay. If you have A and B, then Medicare pays 80% of the allowable bill, and then you're responsible for only 20%. Okay. And then part. So there's still some, some real out of pocket for folks on Medicare. Absolutely, and there are some options. So people can purchase supplemental plans called Medigap plans. Medigap. Mm-hmm. To, to provide that additional coverage and to pick up that 20% that original Medicare doesn't cover. So then there's part D. So D is in dog. Uh-huh. Um, is the prescription drug plan, and plans vary greatly from state to state. So some states have over 50 plans for people to choose from. Um, but you can pick the plan, and the price of the plan depends on the plan that you choose. Okay. And then, finally, there's Part C. Um, C is in Charlie. Yes, which mm-hmm. is also called um, Medicare Advantage plans. Okay. And these are Medicare HMO and PPO plans that coordinate all of your benefits that you would normally receive under Part A, Part B, and Part D together. 
So, for example, uh, SCAN or Kaiser's Senior Advantage are examples of Medicare HMOs. Okay. Now, Nancy, I know you have Medi- a Medicare Part C plan. Is that right? Yes, I do. So tell us the process that you went through to, to choose that plan. Well, I um, was contacted um, by someone in the Patient Advocate Foundation because I was uh, running into, you know, problems with, uh, uh, you know, into, I was falling into the gap with the Part D plan. And uh, this individual called me one day and, and asked me if I would be interested in a different type of uh, insurance plan and was I aware that I, you know, would be eligible and that I could possibly have a different type of medical coverage with no additional premium to be paid out of pocket for me. And I said, yes, I'm interested in that. And then she put me in contact with a representative of that um, plan, and that person came to my home and explained all the ins and outs of the plan, what they would provide, what they would not provide. And then I was able to make an informed decision to change from the, you know, the basic Medicare coverage or a switch to a Medicare Advantage plan. And for me and my income at that time, it was better for me to go with the Medicare Advantage plan mm-hmm. because it provided me uh, with more coverage. I had a choice of doctors and, um, and you know, a wide range of services, even including transportation to and from a doctor's office visit. And, Nancy, do you feel like now helpful. you have all of the, co- the, the, the coverage you need to be managing your, your health today? At this point, I do. I do. The only thing that I think is missing with all of these plans is that they don't provide for dental. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. that has become a problem. With this Medicare Advantage plan I have, it does provide a benefit for vision. Mm-hmm. They give you so much towards a frame, and they will pay for one eye exam every two years. And that's something that Medicare on its own does not cover at all. Joanna, are you finding that, that that's a common thing, that folks are having trouble getting dental? Yes. Dental is typically not a service that's covered under Medicare, but that is something that is often covered under a Medigap plan. So that's one of the things that they include in a Medigap plan. And tell folks again what that is, what a Medigap plan is. It's supplemental insurance that you can buy in addition to your Medicare coverage that fills in those gaps in coverage like the lack of dental care. And what what else besides lack of dental, what else does it help to cover? Sometimes, it, it, it depending on the, the letter of the plan, all of the plans are lettered, they increase in coverage. So they'll pick up that additional 20% that Medicare doesn't pay. Um, they can provide things like um, additional durable medical equipment goods. Dental care is very common. And prior to the prescription drug coverage being afforded to us under Medicare, it also covered prescription drug coverage. So how, just so just so we're clear for folks who are listening, um, Joanna, just just clarify for folks how Medicare is different from Social Security Disability Insurance because I know we got a lot of terms flying around today, and I just want to make sure we're continuing to clarify these terms. Well, the main difference is that Medicare is one of the two federal health insurance programs, while SSDI is one of the two federal long-term disability programs. So Medicare provides coverage for your health care while SSDI provides you with replacement income because you're unable to work due to a severe medical condition that's expected to last at least one year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Joanna, we just have a minute or two before we go to our break, but what are some of the most common questions people, people ask you when they call with questions about Medicare and Medicaid? 
I think the most interesting um, the most interesting thing about all of these topics is that people typically don't even know the questions to ask because these are programs that the average person is really unaware of mm-hmm. um, until they find themselves in the situation where they need this information. So the more education that we can do to the public that these programs are available, I think it will greatly address people's needs. So I know, uh, I know, Joanne, at the end of the show, we're going to talk a little bit more about, uh, about your group and your website, but why don't you just tell folks, uh, for those who are just joining us now, tell, tell folks a little bit about your group, the Cancer Legal Resource Center, and how they can find you. The Cancer Legal Resource Center is a joint program of the Disability Rights Legal Center and Loyola Law School. We're a nonprofit public interest law firm, and we provide information and resources to people on all types of cancer-related legal issues, even things we don't necessarily think of as legal issues, like health insurance and government benefits. Um, so people can reach us by calling our National Telephone Assistance Line, which is 866 843 2572, or they can um, visit our webpage, which is www.cancerlegalresourcecenter.org. Excellent. Fantastic. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're, uh, this is the, the uh, part three in a three-part series about some of the financial issues that uh, folks are confronting and dealing uh, with a cancer diagnosis. Today we're talking about uh, Medicaid, uh, Medicare, and Social Security, particularly Social Security Disability Insurance, which is called SSDI. I think these issues are really uh, particularly pressing and relevant uh, in today's economic environment. Um, We are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today we're talking about Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, uh, disability insurance um, for for folks who are uh, facing cancer, and I'm joined by uh, Joanna Morales, who is the director of the Cancer, Cancer Legal Resource Center in California, 
Nancy Boozer, participant at our wellness community in Atlanta, and Michelle Shanks, program director at the Patient Advocate Foundation. We're uh, in the final segment of our uh, show. We still have a lot more to cover. Um, Nancy, what did you find to be some of your biggest expenses uh, that were not covered by some of these various disability and insurance plans? Were you made aware of these expenses in advance, or, or were some of those unexpected? Well, what I have found to be the biggest expenses and continue to be is the medication cost. Mm. Um, all I always, you know, exceed, you know, the benefit before the year is up. And also uh, the co-payments, even though I have a Medicare Advantage plan and I only pay a certain co-payment, um, I, do, I see a, a, a various number of doctors throughout the month and even throughout the year. Yeah. And when you factor in the number of co-payments you have to make per visit, it does begin to add up over a period of time. And I find that you know, uh, very frustrating when you need to see, you know, your oncologist and maybe an orthopedic doctor and another doctor, and then then you have your follow-up visits and you're paying, you know, anywhere from 10 to $25 per visit, it does add up. Yeah. Uh, You know, I know, uh, Michelle, a study came out recently that... um, that said that that 60% of all personal bankruptcies in the U.S. are as a result of uh, health care costs, but probably more shocking is that 75% of those people had health insurance. Yes. <laughs> These people who are filing bankruptcy because of health care costs had health insurance. What, 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 are, what is that about? What are, those, what are those costs about that are not being covered by their insurance? Well, I think that part of the, the reason that they're going into bankruptcy is because they can't work. They're unable to have that income they're used to, and the disability process does take time. Uh, Even if a benefit is allowed, if if they have to wait for that five-month wait period and they can't pay their mortgage for five months, they they are falling so far behind that they can't catch up. Yeah, yeah. So so the... uh, Interestingly, the conservative advice that we're getting now from all of these financial advisors on the news to make sure you have, you know, eight to twelve months of cash cushion in the bank. Um, it's not just—it's not just about if you lose your job, but it's also about if you have cancer or another uh, another illness. It seems like it's pretty sound advice. We're uh, going back to some of those principles from 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 days gone by in terms of our saving patterns. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Joanna, in terms of some of these kind of the copays and out-of-pocket costs that we've talked about here. Um, and I know this is a, probably a, a, a simple question and maybe a complicated answer, but just so folks have a sense, what are some of the things that Medicare and Medicaid do cover and do not cover, uh, just so folks have some kind of understanding of that as they, as they begin to learn about this and do their research? Well, Medicare coverage depends on which parts of Medicare that you have. So if, for example, you only have Part A, then you'll only be covered for things like physician services, or you won't be covered for things like physician services or x-rays or lab tests or prescription drugs. So um, that's why we always recommend to people they they shy away from paying for Medicare Part B for that monthly premium, but ultimately that monthly premium is going to be much less than what you would have to pay out of pocket for any of those services. Yeah. And Medicare coverage is typically pretty good, and many private plans actually structure their coverage on Medicare. But Medicaid, the coverage um, is is federally mandated, so that all Medicaid programs provide the same federally mandated services like inpatient and outpatient services, 
physician services, those lab tests and x-rays. But then states also have the option to provide what are called optional services, Mm -hmm. like prescription drug coverage or dental care or medical supplies or durable medical equipment or even medical transportation. But as we're seeing, you know, in this current economic environment, we see many states cutting back on those services because they can't afford to provide that care. Yeah, yeah. So you really need to look at the individual plan. You need to understand what's going on at your state level and local level. Um, it's not a it's not a one stop answer. You really need to do some of this research and dig in. Exactly. So and generally, I'm, Medicare and Medicaid aren't going to cover anything that isn't medically necessary. That isn't medically necessary. So they're not going to help you with things like transportation or child care or some of these other out-of-pocket things that we're talking about that can really trip people up sometimes. Exactly. Okay. Um, and we want to encourage folks to, that, that, that uh, a lot of those resources are available in your community. Um, and, uh, again, I want to direct folks to our booklet that's coming out, uh, Coping with the Cost of Care, that lists a lot of those resources um, across the country. Uh, as we move towards the end of our show, I'd like to ask each of you, if you would offer one piece of advice to, uh, to if you could offer one piece of advice to someone who's just been diagnosed with cancer, what would that, uh, what would that advice be? Nancy, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna start with you. Oh boy, that's a toughie to come up with one piece of advice. I know there's so well, we've shared so much on the show today already. <laughs> I think so. you know, I have one piece of advice that has about you know five or six subparts to that. <laughs> um, I think the most important thing uh, would be to educate yourself. Um, by learning as much as of, as possible about your disease, you really have to you know educate yourself as to what is going on with you and your body you know at, at this you know critical time in your life yeah. and you know and that you are your best advocate yeah, and I know folks are saying to us today it 's not just about fighting the disease or picking a doctor picking treatment it 's also about managing all of these financial issues and real life issues that folks are facing every day. Um, Michelle, let me turn to you. What would your piece of advice be to folks who are listening, someone who's just been diagnosed with cancer? I would say to have a conversation with your treating doctor in regards to the disability process, understanding that the definition to disability is that the condition uh, has to prevent you from working on a full-time basis for a 12-month period of time. So if doctor says, you know, I can't tell you that, then... Just educate yourself off the website, talk to the people at Social Security. But if your doctor will give you, you know, the treatment plan and kind of a timeline, then start the Social Security process if you're even close to 12 months because the recovery time and, and uh, possible progression of your disease, you're, you're, you need to get the ball rolling to help um, start that benefit as soon as it can start when the disability decision is made. So get educated, get empowered, start to talk to your health care team. I know, yes. I know some folks, uh, Michelle, tell us that they're uh, embarrassed to talk to their doctor about some of these financial issues or raise some of these financial concerns. Well, what would you say to those folks? I would, I would say the physicians are starting to become more aware of the disability process. They're, they're asked these questions. They're sent that paperwork. They know. But, they, mm-hmm. but the, having that open discussion with your physician on, you know, do you think I should proceed with this application process? They might say, you know, really, this is going to be under control in six to seven months. Well, then, then fine. But at least you're being open and you're talking about it. You, you really need to um, just have an awareness of what benefits are available to you, what public benefits can sustain you, while you're not working, food stamps. 
And folks have also said to us that oftentimes the, uh, the, the nurse in the office or the case manager in the office right. is the person who knows a lot more sometimes than the oh, doctor yeah. about these things. Is that That's right? That's right. And reach out to those people to get you through. Um, patient Advocate Foundation services are free. If they contact us, they're going to be assigned to a case manager that can help them explain a little bit more of this. If they don't have access to caseworkers, social workers within the healthcare facility that they're going to, reach out to uh, our services. Great, and I'm going to give that information in just a minute. Um, Joanna, uh, a piece of advice for someone who's just been diagnosed with cancer, what would that be? I think it would be that you have to be your own advocate, echoing what Nancy said. Mm -hmm. And that includes a few things. It means learning about your rights and your options and being persistent and not taking no for an answer and certainly appealing any denials, whether it be in the health insurance or the disability insurance arenas. Yeah, I, I think that's a, the theme here. You've got to get educated. You've got to get empowered. You can't put your head in the sand about these issues. Managing cancer today is not just about managing the disease or making a treatment option, but it's about managing the, these financial um, and practical aspects uh, of, a, of, a, of a cancer diagnosis. So from day one, uh, I know that folks are oftentimes really startled on you know when they're first diagnosed and all they can think about is, uh, am I going to am I going to recover? Am I going to live? Am I going to you know? But we want to encourage folks, particularly in this day and age in this economy, when we're faced with so many challenges, to also be thinking about these financial and practical issues um, that they're going to confront uh, with a cancer diagnosis. You guys have been amazing uh, today. I want to thank all of you, Nancy, Michelle, and Joanna, for um, for for being on the show today. I feel like we could talk for about two more hours on some of these topics, but uh, I think we've given folks a good overview today. I want to just reference some of these resources. Um, Wellness Community's newest booklet, Frankly Speaking About Cancer, Coping with the Cost of Care, is available at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. You can also call us at 888-793-WELL. To reach our friends at the Patient Advocate Foundation, please visit their website, www.patientadvocate.org, or you can call them at one 800 Five three two five two seven four, and then of course uh, our friends out in California at the Cancer Legal Resource Center visit their website www.cancerlegalresourcecenter.org, or call them at eight six six the C L R C. That's eight six six eight four three two five seven two. I want to dedicate our show today to, to to organizations like the Cancer Legal Resource Center, the Patient Advocates Foundation, and our other partners for providing much need, needed guidance to people affected uh, by cancer and helping them make educated decisions about these very complicated matters. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org.